Hello, and welcome to Effective Conversations with Yael Feiner. Each episode is a unique journey into a polarizing topic where we go beyond the facts, explore the underlying emotions, and learn something new about ourselves. Today, I'm talking with Driftwood, a core figure at the Ferry Creek, who's been working to save the old-growth forests since the early days of the movement. This interview connects many topics we talked about in the Ferry Creek series and shed lights on indigenous protocol, finance, and leadership. I'm having a really hard time reintegrating into what I was doing before we started all of this. Right. And I'm trying to analyze now, like, what... What is it that will, um, what can I do where I can make a living and be effective? You know, and there's a certain point at which when you try, like for me, trying to go back to what I was doing before any of this sort of became so deeply internalized, it's really hard because it's, it just doesn't make very much sense. Like with the like and I knew I knew what was going on with the planet. I knew what was going on with the world. I'm aware that I live on unceded territory and that it's being exploited and always has been. I'm aware about climate change. I just all of this, but for some reason, well, I know exactly when the shift happened, but I don't feel like there's a way for me to go back into what I was doing before. Is a gardener? Doing it. Like, yeah. I mean, gardening, I can still garden. Obviously, it's a nice way to make a living. But the kind of things, just the way I spend my time, the kind of right. things I'm doing with my time, and including the kind of gardens I work in, increasingly over years, been questionable to me. <laughs> you know? Anyway. Yeah. Integration is so important. It's so good that you do that because so many times what we learn doesn't fit our own lives. Yeah. And so many of those realizations ask us to change the way we live, the way we think, and challenge society. What we do is not sustainable. Eating what we eat, eating the amounts we eat, right? Yeah, just being a human in general can be pretty... Um, yeah, being a human in general, it, it's, it's impossible for us to not have an effect on our environment. So, I mean, just no. in our daily lives, but yeah, it's the, how we approach that. And yeah, it must've been interesting for you to, like, you've got this, you know, you've got your child and you've come to these realizations and you have these skills and this awareness and how to integrate them together to live an authentic life. I think that this integration is a lifelong process. It's taking a long, long time and I'm still learning it. I'm still integrating those understanding about climate, about life, about how much we are trapped in mindsets. You know, the scarcity mindset is a big one. And I'm still not living of the thing that I want and meant to do in this life. But at least I'm walking it now and the way reveals itself while we walk it, you know? 
people who do live deeply in the world of finance and, and making standing of money who want to contribute in the way that you're speaking about, like who would love to support land defenders, for instance, um, maybe through your work. So how to bridge all of that together. The thing is, is we're all um, the one pillar, the one thing that we're talking about that means that Teal Jones is in operation, that means that the NDP is getting donations from the United Steelworkers, that means that you and I are struggling to try and live an authentic life while still being able to support ourselves, that means that we have to try and find ways to get money from the people who have it in order to support the people who don't. The one thing that this is centered around, the way our system is set up to only capitalize 100%. Like, it's just how do we... How do we make money, 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 or just, you know, resource extraction. And it's like, oh, it's a huge thing to dismantle. And the weird thing to me is, especially in North America, it has only been, it's been a very short period of time. And this is the thing that, um, this is, this is the part of the work where decolonization comes in so deeply is, you know, for a lot of people, it's only two, three, four generations since this system has been imposed on communities. And now we're all living in it and what's been lost is huge and, um, and we're all trapped. Yeah. And that's the thing. Right. And so many of us, I think, woke up but still didn't figure out how to get out of this trap. It's a weird, I'm a very, it turns out, okay, so one of the things that's happened for me with working with people around this movement is working with and for people and being around community, it turns out is really, really, um, I get charged. Like it's something I love to do and my chosen profession because I need to be outside and I need to have my hands in the dirt and I love flowers and I understand how soil works and all that stuff and the connections too that happen underground and, um, and also it's just really healing to go through seasons and anyway, all of that. Um, it's a really solitary job. It's a very solitary position to be in. Right. So you are alone all day. It's isolated unless I'm running a crew to help mm-hmm. me, which I'm terrible at because I'm not a business person. So yeah, I mean, I was thinking last night about a potential career change that I'm looking into and it's just such a shift, but, uh, I can still garden. That's the cool part. <laughs> There's always soil, hopefully. So you texted me after hearing Marmar's and Nasa's uh, episode, and you wanted to offer your perspective. But you weren't sure you're qualified enough to speak uh, in the podcast or to represent Fairy Creek. So I want to say something about that now. This podcast is focusing on communication. and is not trying to represent the Fairy Creek blockade or the Fairy Creek movement. It's about processing challenging interactions and conversation to learn from them and to learn something new about them and about ourselves. Hopefully, when people will listen to that, they will also reflect on their own interaction, their own conversation, and learn something new about themselves. So there is no one ultimate truth about what happened there. 
it's just our perspective. It's very personal perspective. And there is no one true or one perspective that is the right one. The truth itself made up of all the different perspectives of people that been in the situation and experience it in a completely different way. And this is why I was interviewing so many different people that give light on the full picture and give depth to our understanding. So this is the intention. And I'm so grateful you... You reach out to me because your perspective is just perfect as anyone else. So I'm so happy about that. Thank you. And yeah, so when you texted me, <laughs> what was on your mind? Um, so yeah, I mean, listening to... I was really grateful that you um, interviewed Nas and Marmar and Eartha. It was interesting to hear, especially... The perspective from Nas and the perspective from Marmar, because uh, being able to hear it uninterrupted and without being able to ask questions and being able to just listen to all the words that they had to say and just let them talk and let myself hear um, was really great. I was triggered by a bunch of it, of course, <laughs> by some of the things, not necessarily triggered, but like it, I was affected by some of the things because of the fact that there are so many perspectives on how things go down and what happens and yeah. And like, I think we were talking before about how, you know, there's more than it's funny. There's more than one or two sides. There's a thousand sides to so much of this stuff because thousands of people experienced what is the fairy Creek blockade. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, um, Some personalities are more up front and center, bigger and louder and more obvious, <laughs> and some are quieter. Like I think we talked, yeah, one of the things that I, I found really fascinating is there are a whole pile of folks that no one will ever know their name who came and went, slipped in, slipped out, and just did work. And um, some of it's super significant work. Right. We wouldn't be able to point them out in a crowd. We don't know what they're called, where they were staying. Um, yeah, so it's interesting because by the time HQ came to be and was functioning, some folks would show up to headquarters and that's where they would stay. And other folks would bypass headquarters entirely and never go there, but do hikes or do other things that... Mm -hmm didn't involve this um, bizarre community that just sort of landed in this spot and had so many facets involved in it. It was wild. You know what? Before we dive into that, maybe give us some background about, about your involvement. How did you hear about Fairy Creek? What got you... What made you decide to join this movement? Um, yeah, so when I heard about the blockade forming, I actually couldn't make it to the very first day as I already had a camping trip on the go with a friend who was so not interested in coming to do something like that, and um, which is great. I was taking her campings for a specific reason. And that reason was we needed to be in the woods, which is different than what was happening with the 
blockade. So uh, the weekend that it went up, I was unable to arrive. But you already knew about it. So who told you about that? You know what's interesting is the first person to alert me to what was happening was no one from the actual blockade. So uh, it was a friend who sort of is a friend of a friend of a friend, a friend who's in our, you know, Canada's a small town and then Vancouver Island's a tiny town. So she knew that I had been spending a bunch of time in the Walbrown Valley and she asked me if I was going to be participating in this action that was out in that neighborhood, like out in that area. She didn't even really know where it was. But anyway, so yeah, I just asked what I could do and went from there. So my first day was, I guess, the 15th um, of August. I think the blockade went up on the 9th. Right. So do you have former experience living or working with Indigenous people? Um, so, it, yeah, I mean... My, um, how I got to the blockade in the first place was I picked Bill Jones up at his house or not at his house, but near his house and him and I spent the day together. We drove up there. So that was the first day that he was actually at camp and, um, that's how I met Bill and that's how I met the blockade. Um, but no, I'm not like, I haven't been immersed in indigenous communities really at all, especially not on the coast. Again, from Saskatchewan, where, yeah, that's a whole different, it's a whole different topic. <sighs> so when you joined the blockade, as a white uh, person wanting to help you, want to save the, the forest, what, what was on your mind? Were you thinking about uh, its opportunity to save the last remnants of a uh, little what left from this? So for myself, my experience... Yeah what was on my mind, and more importantly, what was in my soul mm -hmm. um, was I have, like, I mean, the pandemic was happening and, you know, I work outside, so that's fine. It hadn't really affected, like, how I live um, or what I do for a living, but it's impossible not to be affected by knowing what's going on in the world, yeah. you know, there Folks like friends of mine who live in Spain, who are locked into their apartment unless they have a note and that kind of stuff. And it was, that was all happening. Um, and I, it was summertime and I'd been doing some camping in the Walbrand Valley and uh, it is such an incredible healing place. It's really hard to put into words what it's like to be able to spend time in an intact ancient ecosystem. And um, so like a few weeks before the blockade even started, I found myself, um, you know, just sitting alone. I'd gone for a walk. I was camping with friends. I'd gone for a walk on the rocks and the river and just sitting alone and um, just being immersed, being overwhelmed, being, just having the experience of what that ancient energy is just running through everything that was happening. And I was just kind of overwhelmed with a sense of gratitude. And um, I couldn't believe how, like, how I am so fortunate to even get to be in this place 
and then overwhelmed by how rare that place is and the fact that that place is even somewhere I can go because of work that people have done in the past um, to preserve these ecosystems that are, it's so much more than saving trees. It's not about saving trees. I mean, it is, obviously it's about saving trees, but that, uh, I mean, there are trees in these places, but uh, there's so many more layers involved. And so that, of course, includes the land that we're on. And I don't know exactly how, like, to say that without it sounding really flaky, but um, I basically, I asked the forest, like, because I was just so overwhelmed with gratitude and just also I was being communicated to, you know? And so, and this also, whatever, it's what happened. And um, so I asked just like, what, what, what am I supposed to do? Like, what can I do? And then within a few days, this dropped on my lap. Uh, nice. Someone was like, well, you can do this. Here's your and answer. I was like, oh, okay. Um, and I don't, so That's I was amazing. faced with not having a choice. And so knowing that, I got in touch with um, someone and said, okay, what do you need me to do? And just without skipping a beat, that person said, I need you to go to Pachidat and pick up Bill and bring him here on Saturday at nine. Right. So, okay. So then that's what, <laughs> um, yeah, so that's, that was the introduction. That's a soul calling and it sounds like a profound, like the most spiritual, you know, experience people can experience connecting with God. It's this kind of experience connecting with nature, like so profound and strong. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't, and you can feel it there. The, just the the way it ex, it spread and exploded, I was just hearing a whisper of what the valley was yelling, you know, basically, like, I, yeah, we were being called. You're being called, yeah. Being called. And um, it's an interesting thing because one of the major issues that has come up is that protocol wasn't followed when the blockade was initiated. Like there were no protocols followed. Mm-hmm. Um, others heard that call and it happened at a time that was just so significant. One more day, a couple of more days, if those guys hadn't shown up, that road would have crested the ridge. And I don't know if people understand how close that watershed came to having its being breached. Like it just, it's, it just seems, yeah, anyway, so. I think you're saying that if you wasn't listening to this call and all the other people doing things right away, there was, there was nothing to save already. Like it was urgent. For that specific spot, it was urgent. Yeah. 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 And um, I kind of feel like that specific spot called out you know, and found a way. So it, it found a way to communicate to these folks who 
acted upon the information that they had. So it happened. They showed up. There was no protocol followed, no permissions asked. Um, I just, yeah. Just the call of the forest, which is the most uh, native things as far as we are Western society, you know about natives, like they speak with the nature and speak with the forest. Like it's the most, it's the deepest things one can experience. And Bill Jones talk about it in the, the interview that one day I will <laughs> edit and post, uh, that everyone has a native soul if they spend enough time in the woods. And this mm-hmm. is exactly what you're experiencing or uh, talking about now. So it's uh, beautiful. Yeah. I mean, and I had, I'd cut myself off. I had spent time, I'd spent quite a bit of time in those forests in the past. It'd been many, many, many years. And so I think that was maybe part of why it was so, such a profound, you know, when Bill says, go to the woods, like, um, go for a walk in the woods. It's, it's the most profound thing one can do. Yeah. So you're from the beginning there working with, RFS folks, have you been RFS from the day one? Is it started already or it's something that came up later to decide the name for the society or how this organization or what are you? You're not um, an NGO even. No, RFS, from my understanding, was basically uh, a really creative way to, but, um, you know, a specific creative person uh, just threw that out there as what they would work under. And I think the idea was just like, like just being able to like pop over here and pop over there. You know, there was no intention for, that's the thing about RFS. I don't believe that the intention behind that moniker um, held as much weight as it's being given now. Yeah, I mean, I think it, like in the very, like if we, if we were to go back to where this all began, as far as like Rainforest Flying Squad, quote unquote, I mean, I wasn't there to begin with, but this, is, this was a collection of folks who knew each other, tight-knit community who have been doing this kind of work for many years. And um, honestly, most of whom I don't see around at all anymore mm-hmm. you know so um it grew away from this seed that was planted and it being like i'm just using air quotes here again rainforest flying squad just um it's like it detached from its origins and just became this entity in itself partially because of the value it's been given from different people, like whether it's folks who need something to point at or folks who need something to identify with. And that's why we often hear folks say, what is the RFS even, you know? So it just, yeah. And then it, that's how, that was the email and that became how we identified in order to know what we were talking about. In right. the beginning, and that's just there's no there's no agenda behind that and, specific. And something that color. was sorry, something that was surprising for me, and I learned to be wrong in a way that RFS are not white folks. It's a mixture of 
uh, white supporter people and many indigenous people. But it sounds like from some of the people that RFS are all white. The movement in general is diverse. It is, I mean, I have so much more to learn about this, but um, yeah, a lot of us come to this work in a very colonial way. A lot of us come to this work in a very racist way um, because we are coming out of a colonial racist society. This is where we've been conditioned. This is where I've been conditioned. Um, so, you know, it's not wrong when, um, when people... When it's not wrong when someone says that this movement is a settler movement or a colonial movement or, you know, it doesn't mean that that's not being worked on. You know, there are a lot of people in the movement who are working on decolonizing themselves and decolonizing their minds and their lifestyles and how to approach being here as we are in a different way of being. Personally, I'm 48 years old. It took me, you know, four decades to get to a certain place. <laughs> and most of, yeah, most of those decades were the more formative decades. So, you know, deprogramming oneself is a, it's, it's a, it's a work in progress. Yes. Lots of work. When, when you say we came here in a colonial or racist way, can you give example of something that you notice in yourself or in others or just like examples of what is it to, to come in a racist way or come in a colonial way? What is it? Well, one, one thing would be um, like just the feeling of entitlement to just like tromp around wherever we want, you know, um, even just driving, like just, just our whole way of being on the land as we are in this present time is just backwards. Something that you didn't know before you came to the, to the camp and now, and now you say, wow, I, I won't do that again. Or I, I realize that this is coming from colonial mindset. Yeah. Well, just the, um, even just how we have to set up, like the way I know how to set up some kind of, uh, organization or, uh, the way I've been trained to be in an organization even is um, hierarchical. It's honestly patriarchal. Um, it's, there's just these layers and layers and layers of how we relate to each other in the world and on the land that just is colonial. It just is. And I'm just going to categorize it for a second. So yes, there's like, I want to talk about like the way we, we, approach being on the land, the way we approach going to a place, the way we approach eldership and listening, and then the way we approach uh, youth. Mm-hmm. So that's different from the thing that really blew my mind over this last couple of years. But and I think that's something that I'd love to get into. But um, so one way that is really apparent to me, and I knew this before, and I had completely forgotten it, one way that this was colonial and settler is there's a way of walking, like there's a way of showing up in a place, mm-hmm. you know, and it's almost like in one way you're walking on top of the place, getting from here to there, you know, you're just like tromp, 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 A to B. And in another approach, you get to the beginning of where you're going. And you look around and you ground out and you listen and you let the place know 
you're here, you're coming, you're going to go do this. And you respect, like it's a, it's a matter of respect. It's so hard. English is so hard. Like just words are hard sometimes to really define what this experience is. But, um, like you're not using the place, you're part of the place. Yeah. You're, it's like you're entitled to use a place and use it for your own needs. And like, it's a self-centered thing to trump, trump, trump on a place. Wow. That's, <laughs> that's really good. Yeah. It's, re it's like when you're getting to know a person too. Um, like you see someone, you have an idea of who they are or like you just, you see them and then you start to discuss things and you get to know them and you understand where they're coming from. It's the exact same thing. Say I'm walking into a forest. If you stop for a second, certain things will become apparent and so, yeah. You need to let it know. You need to listen to whether or not it's good for you to even be in this particular spot at this time. All of that stuff. You don't just get out of your car or wherever you are and just trump, 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 trump. Right. So decolonizing ourselves, it's like developing a sensitivity to our surrounding. It's like working on a new muscle we don't have in our society. And that's one of the things that came up in the interviews that you did. Um, uh, one of the topics that came up was the topic of leaving a footprint and that was something that I wanted to address too um like with that in mind uh there was a point at which um anyone who was showing up was asked and expected to basically pack in and pack out like only bring what you need you're like say you're going for a week you know what you require to eat and you know All the things. Um, and especially since it was COVID, most people were cooking for themselves. You know, there was a community kitchen, but, um, and we even had rules around that at the time, early on, like just two people in the space and, you know, rules. I don't know if that's the right word, but there was an approach that was, you only got in what you expected to consume. Yeah, and you never left anything behind was the expectation, including um, vehicles and any, any bigger things. And um, if you brought something up onto the mountain, like a school bus or a truck, um, you're expected to be responsible for how that affects the place, how you're going to get it out of there, um, you know. Like, is your, is your van leaking fluids? Probably not a great idea to drive it up to the river. <laughs> right. You know? Um, and if it's broken down... I mean, things became a lot harder after enforcement. Like, you, we didn't really have a choice sometimes about whether or not we were able to access the things that we had up there. But we did have a choice as to what to bring onto the land um, and how to make use of those things on the land as well. So it was funny to hear about Marmar's apartment. Like he emptied, uh, yeah, emptied his entire apartment onto the side of the logging road. It was so lovely to hear um, how that felt for him, like, and what that provided to people. And, um, but I remember the day I heard that these dressers and couches were coming. I just was like, I was a bit overwhelmed. 
because we were like, I was already overwhelmed at the stuff and the things and the tarps and the vehicles and the vans and the, you know, buildings. And it just all seemed like a lot. Um, but I think that was the point at which it was no longer, we're no longer able to, um, control maybe the, yeah. I mean, things were evolving in their own way and on their own terms and, So who were uh, who were cleaning this the uh, Marmar's camp after that? I think a lot of for instance Marmar's camp I think a lot of that just who that was an interesting day so um, I think a lot of Marmar's camp just got picked up by an excavator you know so the day that I left HQ after enforcement began I was walking out and there was an excavator like the I could hear actually I saw it after, but I could hear the excavator crunching the kitchen and oh. crunching structures and just like all of this like is loud and awful and the noises of it and um to see it on the way out was a really emotional experience for a lot of people, but I'm gonna be honest with you for me, I had a sense of relief about the impact like the we'd taken that area hostage basically um, and the impact was like it was weighty you know all that stuff is, is has weight it has a presence to it and it it's just it kept collecting more um, it's funny so there was a relief for for knowing that those things are going away now that there is less stuff in the forest. less footprint, less presence? Yeah, um, in a way, because, and this is just from my own perspective. Um, and the reason for that is I think early on in the springtime, during mating season for the grouse, mm-hmm. we, you know, there wasn't anything down where HQ became, you know? Um, there was, Yeah, there was nothing down there. And people didn't, like, HQ wasn't something. If you were going to camp, you were going up to river camp. Knowing that when enforcement came, people would be coming, uh, it seemed like a really good idea to get people as they're coming in and, you know, check them out and give them some information and that kind of thing. And so that's kind of where HQ was born. And the first morning, the first sunrise... Of, for myself camping there I thought I could hear a generator in the background like in the distance right and uh, I was like oh that's weird like who's starting a generator at five in the morning or whatever and I'm just like okay just make some coffee go on with the day and then it happened again the next morning and the next morning and I'm embarrassed to say that it took me so many days to realize that someone isn't starting a generator at sunrise and That is the quail waking up and trying to say like, "Hey ladies, I'm over here, not the quail. I'm sorry, the grouse waking up. And um, so <laughs> there's this amazing thing that happens at sunrise when you're a grouse, and they have this this, um, this wing thrashing that they do, and it's like <laughs> and it's very mechanical sounding. It's very loud. Wow. And, um, And so they find places sort of, from my understanding, they kind of find an echoey place to make that happen, right? And it just, you could hear it everywhere. And um, this particular guy lived just over this, there's like this little berm where HQ ended up being established. And he kind of just lived like right on the other side of that berm. I was 
you know, that's his house. And so that was a thing that was in my awareness. And then, um, you know, within a couple of days, a tree planting company came and they planted the clear cut where the sacred garden ended up being and where um, like between there was an area that held sort of the media area and then up towards the black gate that you hear Marmar talk about, there was this kind of clear cut mm-hmm. triangle. Like if you triangulated all of that, there's this big space. And so, yeah, we have like quail guy over here on the right. And then over here on the left, um, a tree planting company had come through and just replanted this area. And it was very quiet. There was very few people around. And so that was a certain experience. And we had like, I felt like it was easy to contain myself and each other. And, um, and connect to the nature because you hear the birds, you hear what's, yeah. Yeah, just being aware of where we are. Like yeah. Less overwhelming. Whatever. Yeah. And then to go from that to summer. The summer and then on, um, you know, August 13th or whatever day it was, coming down, hearing the excavators crashing and crunching all of the things and, um, like just making these piles of material goods on the side of the road. It was quite something to see. And weirdly, Did they tell you about that before or just decided one day to do that? Did you know that they're going to do that? You could just save those things. And... No, there's no way. And, um, you know, well, the only way to save those things was there was a front line as HQ was being enforced upon. Um, so a bunch of folks went down to the road and tried to hold the line. Some tripods went up, that kind of thing. And it gave folks behind the line time to save the dishes and get the food out of the way and, you know, that Mm -hmm. kind of stuff. So, yeah, no, there was never, it would have taken a massive effort to keep that forest from coming in and destroying everything. Um, It doesn't surprise me, however, that they came the day that they did um, because, (laughs) okay, and so, is another thing. On August 9th, that was a Monday, was the one-year anniversary of the first blockades that went up. And an event was planned in Victoria to celebrate it. And so I'm really not surprised that that was the day that was chosen to enforce HQ because clearly people would be in Victoria for the celebration. Mm. And I kind of, when I heard about the the celebration that was being planned for the one year anniversary at camp on a Saturday, I wondered about how that would go because if we were celebrating the one year anniversary of camp at camp, we couldn't exactly also be celebrating it in Victoria at the legislature on a Saturday. Um, like that would split the celebrations, right? Mm-hmm. So um, not having it in town on a Saturday meant it had to be, because you want to bring it to people who want to support, right? So it had to be sometime. And so the actual day of was a Monday. So that's when the rally celebration happened downtown Victoria. And um, that was a really surreal experience because it was a, a bit of a, I think for myself, I was really torn between where to be, like which reality to be in 
knowing what might go down at camp, but also, um, so you, like I had you a, were thinking about that, that it might happen, that the police take advantage of that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, the obligations, like being um, torn between two obligations, mm-hmm. not that I felt obliged to be in either place, but I wanted to be in both. Yeah. Um, I wonder if you can talk about the changes that had happened in the movement in terms of size. You said there was three stages. I want you to repeat that. And then we'll dive in into challenges, interactions. Yeah, well, and it, these are two separate things. I, I will talk quickly about the growth and retreat of, of the movement on the ground. And then we can go into more detail on your questions that you yes. just had. Mm-hmm. Right. I thought around all of that. So yeah, there's no way it was a small concerted effort. And when the injunction came down, there was no way really to control all like who would come and how they would come as much as we tried to be graceful about it. Um, at that point there was no there was no us, there was no like there's no controlling what happens in a situation like that. So why? The movement and the reality of the blockade itself grew itself into its own thing. And it had so many layers and so many arms. And there was actually no, there would be little way to quote unquote control it, you know, or know what's going to happen next. And that's just the nature of it. And then when enforcement came, I, yeah, when enforcement came, That inspired a new level of engagement, a new sense of urgency. You know, I think I was speaking with someone a while back and he was talking about like the tactics um, that blockaders had to employ. And, you know, a lot of that stuff was in response to and because of and inspired by the police aggression. So, you know, listening to RCMP talking about how they had to respond to this tactics, it's like, well, yeah, (laughs) because the way you came in made it so that people needed to protect themselves and each other and the land in a more aggressive way, (laughs) you know? So um, anyway, that just became a whole thing and then once you know hq had been enforced and enforcement was happening up and down the mountain and a lot of people left partially because it's fall and they had to go back to school Mm -hmm. or because camps weren't there anymore unless you were a part of you know a really specific kind of person who um has the skills to really be in the depth of woods that they were working in at that point. Um, that's not for everyone. That's for sure. Um, it's for very few people have the skills to do that safely. So unless you were those people, then there's no, yeah. So the population of camp definitely descended quite a lot down to the few folks who are left and yeah. So it was an ebb and a flow and it was a big ebb and a big flow. (laughs) And then, Yeah, so you're bringing another important perspective about some of those expectations that didn't met by some. 
Yeah, well, I mean, if you so it went from um, collective decision making, and you know, if something happened at camp that needed to be addressed, everybody showed up and talked about it. We were able to have circle. We were able to have long conversations. We were able to meet and plan and have long discussion about what to do next. And um, when a problem came up, we could we could talk about it. Right. Um, and there was time for that and a place for that and you knew who you could trust and all of that and then so as camp expanded and it expanded very quickly um being able to have collective decision making or to have circle around certain things or yeah those kinds of discussions that need to happen when you're making decisions or taking care of people there it, it's impossible um not impossible but it was it was hard because not only do we all of a sudden not know each other? You know, suddenly I'm looking at a hundred faces I've never seen before and we don't know each other and I don't know where you're coming from and you don't know where I'm coming from. And um, there's enforcement happening and there's, you know, with any group of people, there's going to be problems that come up. Problematic people will arrive and distractors, some of whom maybe are on purpose will come to take the attention away from, you know, the, what we're there for. And, um, it just, we didn't have any, like, I mean, we did have leaders, um, Bill Jones, for instance, but you know, and he, he's, he's always been a part of different decision-making that's gone on, but, um, yeah, there's no specific, so no one knew who to talk to basically is what I'm trying to say. Like if, um, there were some people who came to camp who uh, kind of assumed that there were no things in place because they didn't know where to look for them. And how would they is the other thing. Um, you know, orientations were, were sample. Like I had been away from camp for a couple of days and I, I came and I met this person um, who was, he was super frustrated and angry that things were so chaotic, um, that there was no leadership. And, uh, you know, he was, he needed to get some gas for a car that he was using to drive people to and from places at camp. And um, he was pissed off that there was no like routine about that. Like hadn't, why haven't we sorted that out? And um, we had sorted that out and there was a routine about that. And it's actually one of the things that I personally took care of quite a lot was making sure that the gas cans were full and, you know, we had a specific place where there was some and he just didn't know about it and nobody had told him, but also nobody had asked me, (laughs) not that, you know, um, not that they would know to do that. Right. Like, like why would they know? Like, why would he have known coming into camp that there's this person that maybe has an idea about where the gas gets stored or whatever. So how did you react when he came like this angry and frustrated to you and was he blaming you personally um no um no he wasn't personally blaming me he was blaming the movement and how chaotic it is and how disjointed it is and how there's no one to lead anything mm-hmm. and, um, you know he's not wrong things are pretty chaotic yeah <laughs> um things are pretty disjointed i would love to see something like that happen that didn't go in that direction a little bit, but it's the approach and how to deal with the chaos, I think, that became a bit of a problem. And so, yes, in that particular case, uh, 
he didn't necessarily take it out on me and I was like on me personally, but he was taking it out on me, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. But I was having a very, very frustrating day. And so uh, that's how we met. We were having this, we were both having these frustrating days. So how did you react to him? I was super frustrated. Like, dude, you should have just asked. And plus, I need to go do this thing. And like, can you please excuse me to like, because actually the car he was in question was, um, anyway, it's a long story. So I want to, to point out that this person is indigenous person. And what's interesting about that, that you were talking before about decolonizing ourselves and decolonizing our minds and the way we are in the world and with each other. And he's preaching about that, but he's not practicing that. And it's not to say something bad about him, but it is to say something about how much it's easy to blame others and see how other people are doing wrong and how much it's easy to be blind to what we do. Yeah, it's just so easy to blame. It's so easy to look outside of ourselves and not inside of ourselves. It's painful to admit that we did something wrong, that that we didn't listen, that we did this mistake. But it's the way to grow. It's the way to become better, better human and, and have better society and see the world that we want to create. So this is why it's important for me to say that. Yeah, I could see how it would be hard to know who to look for, who to talk to in a situation like that. But in a lot of the situations where if you came in and you saw that there was a deficit or a problem, really it would not have been easy for a lot of people to know exactly what direction to go. Um, but that's where taking some time, once again, it's this whole thing of just like checking out the environment before making any concise actions. Um, so if you're coming into a space like that and looking for structure, I mean, it's changing every day, like who I can work with. Yeah. in this massive group of people who is like uh, constantly changing. And so the point of that is just that like, um, so say you were to come in and you did have a problem and you were looking for someone to talk to, you might come across someone who has decided they know what the solution is without the information mm -hmm. behind it. To, um, you know what I mean? So people will find solutions without consulting people because they didn't know who to consult with, so they came up with their own ideas and yeah. solutions. Yeah. And in some cases, that's really, really great. Mm -hmm. And in some cases, it was reinventing the wheel again and again every day. Um, you know, just... Uh, yeah. And this is maybe the, the downside of decentralized society. But yeah, and as far as the downside of decentralized society or how we reinvent the wheel, I'm going to use one thing as an example. There was, a, there was a, a storage trailer that would be for food donations that would come in because um, donations just started coming, you know? It was crazy at one point. Uh, that's a whole other story. But donations were coming in. They were coming in fast and hard, and people were trying to figure out how to organize them. So there was this food trailer um, very early on, these lovely folks, I just love them to bits, came and were like, okay, we're going to set up this system. And great. So they set up the system. And then a couple people came to volunteer, completely rearranged the system. And so those folks are there for, say, like a week. And they're running supplies. They're running how to 
deal with supplies and it's going in a certain way and then a new volunteer comes in and that system doesn't work for them. So an entire day or two goes into redoing the system so that it works for them, but they're only there for a week. So that trailer got emptied out, restocked, emptied out, restocked and rearranged so many times. And um, it's because there was, and I, I think maybe NOS referred to this, NOS did refer to this. And this was something that was really frustrating is um, it was impossible sometimes, like for some situations in the storage trailer for food is the food trailer is a really good example where systems couldn't really be implemented because either the information wasn't shared or the next person who came along had a different idea of how that system should go. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and this is all happening when everybody's moving fast and everyone's working hard and, and everybody's stressed so- and police coming every and- few days and. Yeah, and people have like, or yeah, people are at uh, high cortisol levels and low sleep, and you know, um, okay nutrition until NOS came along, and then all of a sudden people were eating magic, which is <laughs> fantastic, you know. But there was, and that's another like, there was a system before NOS was there where um, the cookie uh, came in, and cookie was there specific days um, of the week. And from April on, and yeah, things change. But, you know, we, so this is how things happen that are differently. Like, so Cookie would come in, Cookie came in for specific days of the week. And when Cookie was there, really specific things happened at really specific times. And everyone knew, like, oh, Cookie's here. Okay, breakfast is at eight o'clock, lunch is at noon, you know, that kind of thing. And people would volunteer to work with Cookie. And there was a few days a week where that always happened. And that happened all of April, all of May, all of June. Right. And the nostril and cookie was no longer in the kitchen. Right. So um, what they're saying, is it made a problem for cookie? That's for cookie to say. I don't know. But um, just so not like the and i'm using like these all these things as just little examples nos came in with nos's community like i think with a couple people who just kicked ass like they showed up they saw it needed to be done they created a system that worked for them and off they went and um it was like seven days a week And they were just on it, on it, on it. And it was almost like there was a moment. I remember one moment this summer I was standing, looking at how that was all going and just knowing that like, this is a glimpse into a future I'm really looking forward to, mm-hmm. you know, but um, I, I so, can't understand you. I don't really understand what you're trying to say here. Uh, yeah. So I think what I was trying to say is I, I just remember looking at that kitchen one day and just like how, what was happening in it. And feeling like I was getting a glimpse into a future, like into something that is yet to be, that's going to be amazing. Okay. Right? So, yeah. So that was, and that's just like a flash. I just remember this flash that I was like, that's awesome. So it was really awesome and amazing because... Well, this actually came from, you know, talking about how... Systems were continuously changing and unreliable right and and with cookie exactly the same like and cookie ended up be and is was always will be a hugely integral part of the health culture 
the safety of camp. And uh, so Cookie moved on to another area, you know, and established themselves there, which was great. But yeah, that, that's what I mean about like the continuously changing nature of a place. Just... Yeah. I want to ask you about Nasser's, when he was talking about the abuses at the blockade. Were you aware of that? Mm-hmm. Like, are you and other people were aware of that? And how was it being treated? Do you agree there was abuses? Oh, yeah. 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 Um, yeah, yeah. So, yes, there were. Um, there was abuses and there was allegations. Um, I can only speak to it from my own perspective, right? Like, I can't speak to it from other people's perspective. And part of that is, and it's not me not wanting to take responsibility for my part or whatever. It's just, um, actually, I'll say... Potentially, I wasn't giving certain things attention because they would have needed a lot of attention. Do you know what I mean? So like um, oh, so hard to say. It's okay. It's okay. Take a moment. I'm not rushing you, and nobody is judging you. Just take a moment. Yeah, I mean, how do I respond? Um, do you feel judged when you hear what Nas is saying or when I'm asking you that? So I don't necessarily feel judged as in I don't feel like anyone's saying that it's my fault that this stuff happened or that things got overlooked. I feel... I think where my struggle comes from is that I mean, there was a time where my biggest stress was that there was a paperclip in the woods, right? But feeling responsible to what's going on and not being able to do anything about it, if that's just that a new outhouse needs to be dug because this one's almost full, that's really easy to deal with. There's an obvious solution. You dig the hole and then... Um, I guess it's a sense of responsibility to... Um, make sure it's not up to me to take care of everyone but I'm just just in case that didn't record like just as an example of how why I feel terrible <laughs> about not having been able to deal with so many of these things is because I felt responsible like not in a controlling way but in a a way where um, if there had been time to find solutions if there had been time to to actually sit down and have like real bridging you know I'm not saying bridging like let's bring in an abuser and um, you know make it okay and that's, that's not what I mean at all but um, you know there's so I don't even know how to address that actually okay so what I'm hearing from you in this situation is that You actually really cared about what's happening, but you, at that time, were so overwhelmed from life and from everything that's going on that you didn't have emotional space and mental capacity to deal with another thing. And you know what? When I was talking with Nas, I actually felt the same. I was, when I was editing the podcast, I said, wow, he talked so much about those abuses, and I didn't ask what happened. 
like what going on why didn't ask and I felt like oh my god if I'll maybe like I'm thinking about right now but if I was asking that a Pandora box would open you know and it will take us to different direction and I was trying to keep myself um, focused on the task or something like stupid like that like focused on the um, like trying to keep everything together keep myself together because I felt there was a sense of if we're going to touch that it's going to be very very emotional for me too so and there's like therein lies what is painful we're getting to it now what's painful for me about that is that I guess um feeling like the quote-unquote organization or the culture of camp being blamed for the actions of a person that I can't control um yeah I don't feel blamed and I don't feel responsible but I am frustrated I guess is it is what it is and honestly in some cases if that particular person would have just shut their mouth and been a little less front and center things would be okay for them you mean the the person that was abused you mean no 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 never should someone who's been abused feel like they need to be quiet ever okay no. so what do you mean we need to create safer spaces for people to feel like they can come forward with those things what i mean is i there you know there's one particular person i can think of who didn't seem to be able to internalize and understand really understand the harm that had been done and couldn't seem to grasp that their very presence was re-harming continually. Mm -hmm. And so there was this consistent, like, struggle against, like, consistently trying to stay and consistently trying to remain in this position, which just solidified and strengthened the case of the harm that had been done. Right. Yeah. Tell me if Nas is listening to this right now or other people that were abused, there is something you want to tell them? Like, it's unfortunate that everything happened so hard and so fast and just grew beyond the container that was built to hold it so quickly. Like, the yeah, the container was unable to hold everything that happened and all the people that came and all of the like resources that were needed. And who knew there was going to be 40 cops every day? Like nobody was aware of any of the stuff that was going to go down and there just was not a way to navigate it properly. Like yeah. we did. Everyone navigated the best that they could with what they had at the time. But I know for sure that for the most part, and this doesn't mean anything really, but like intentions were never for harm from most people, right? So if something was neglected, it wasn't out of disrespect necessarily. It was out of the, like a lack of capacity. 
you know, you're saying you don't feel personally attacked, but it sounds pretty emotional for you. How do you feel right now? Well, on the one hand, I do feel like I have, you know, my heart feels certain things to and for Nas, for instance, just out of when we're talking about specifics. You know, I'm almost 50, right? So, and not that that means anything, but I just I have a little bit more time, maybe, to think about some things. And I just want really hope that um, folks who went through this experience that we did all collectively go through, however, whichever way it is that you went through it or any one of us went through it. Um, the folks that went through and had this experience and have come out of it with really specific results and really specific feelings mm-hmm. um, would take now the time to debrief about it when there's, when there's actually room to do that, I guess is what I'm trying to say is we, you know, there wasn't really room for debriefing and for learning from each other. And, you know, we can say all we want that there was, you know, circles and time to talk and stuff, but nobody was ever a hundred percent present at a circle because there was a walkie talkie on and you know that someone's getting pulled out of a tree sit and there's a helicopter going by and, you know, 50 people just came in the gate. Like there was way too much going on to actually sit and be fully present with each other. Yeah. So how could we have, how could we fully hear each other? Yeah. In, in in those experiences, you know? Yes. So, yeah. um, The potential of the potential power in, in the various communities that came together is really quite phenomenal. And I would hope, and I don't mean to minimize anyone's experience at all, but I would hope that we could learn how to take the best of these things mm-hmm. and work with that and work together in those, on those terms with the patience that it takes to build some of the things, you know, to build relationships build relationships, and also to build vision and to build the dreams that we have and to follow through on those dreams being built and, and also take the time to get the information. You know, I keep hearing about how RFS has raised all this money and there's money, 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 so much money. And like, they're just wasting money and it's a capitalist organization and it's a settler organization and raised all this money, money, money. And I'm just like, really where? Like, I mean, okay, now I'm getting excited. It's, I just, I don't even want to look at the word typed ever again. I'm just so disgusted with it um which word tight like when they say money is the root of all evil Uh like i really it's and i don't mean that like for instance i'm not saying that like the actual money is the problem because it's not it's our perceptions of it and what it means to everyone and it becomes a point of contention because we are in a society there's built on a capitalist system and that's what we value over anything else and so when it comes to that I'm not saying I value that over anything else I'm sure most people don't but it still becomes a point of contention because it's 
in the world we live in, it's what we need to get by. It's what we need to meet our needs. And, um, you know, I, I had to get off all the signal threads because of some of the stuff that was going down, like some of the claims that were being made. And so financially, there was a GoFundMe that ended up getting shut down. And then a, a fundraiser, like there was two main fundraisers, right, for the collective as a whole. One was the GoFundMe and then a fundraiser was started. And um, I think GoFundMe got up to 750000 or something and fundraiser got up to 400 or something. So what's that? Um, you know, $1.3 million, let's say. Mm-hmm. Like, sounds like a lot of money, right? However, <laughs> uh, you know, um, you know what else there was is satellite communication systems. Um, so devices that we could communicate with up to the mountain, there was internet provided to camp through satellite. That's not super cheap. Um, like that money was used for gasoline. That money was used for camp supplies, for camp vehicles. Uh, and a huge amount was set aside for legal support to support the people who actually put themselves on the line and um, are now facing having to go to court. All of those things, you know, we, this injunction was, we appealed the decision. Um, like to begin with, we appealed when the injunction was applied for. There was an appeal. So, you know, that didn't cost nothing. Like that cost something. And then when the enforcement order came down, so the enforcement order came down against members known as the Rainforest Flying Squad, plus the names that were also listed, Bill Jones being one of them. So, you know, anytime that we were, I felt like I was representing Bill if I was speaking to, say, the RCMP or something. Mm -hmm. Anyway, and we went to court for when uh, Teal Jones... Anyway, blah, blah, blah. There was a lot, there was a lot of court stuff. Yeah. Um, and that all cost money. I'm trying to think of like... Wow. Okay. So what left from all of that? Is anything left? All the categories were first, like, like all the different places. Oh, right. And so there was um, some like honoraria, you know. Achidat? You know, for people like for BIPOC community and also for people coming. Um, so Marlene Hale came, you know, uh, various visiting elders and teachers that would come. Um, so there was yeah. money aside for them to support them? Yeah. Um, yeah, some support within the local community within Pachidat. And, you know, the thing is, it's like, None of that was a lot of money. Like, it sounds like a huge amount. And when I heard specifically when Nas was saying what we should do with this money, I was like, it's been done with a lot of it, most of it. So most of it is already gone. Well, there's, um, you know, there's some, as far as I know, like, and I'm not, you know, I'm not looking at the books or anything. I don't, I don't know that much about it, but I do know that there is in order for us to have any legal support, we have to have something to back that up. So, you know, I'm, I'm sure there's something there to support the legal initiatives or like, 
um, take care of people going to court. But it's not like there's $2 million that we should just give, that we have. No one has that. That money doesn't exist. Um, You know, camp was expensive to run, even though uh, it may not seem like it. (laughs) You know? Um, we started to talk before about what uh, you were very excited about your learning uh, happened in the camp and then we kind of sidetracks from uh, for different things and I wonder if you want to go back to that and just finish that uh, idea about your learnings yeah so well, this is very exciting actually this is a, one of the most exciting parts of this for me so I'm you know I'm 48 and I Think about what the generation gap is for me between, say, myself and the generation ahead of me, like older than me. And um, the difference between that and the generation gap between myself and folks way younger than me now, like it's exponential, the changes in awareness, the knowledge and the evolution it's happening at such an exponential rate now. So the, the generation gap between say Nas or Marmar or any of these actually, Oh my God, I'm so thankful. And I've expressed it to a few specific people from camp for having had the opportunity to spend time with youth. I, I didn't have kids. I don't have kids. Right. So um, to be exposed to the ways of thinking that are coming up right now, to be exposed to the awarenesses that are coming up right now is just um, such a gift, such a gift. For me, one of the things that came out of this whole experience was just getting to see the world in a completely different way. Um, You know, I'm still researching now, like I have a lot to learn. Um, We all do. Yeah, but when else, like I, I, not only was this community like a community of people who came together for very similar reasons and a community who's willing to do the work and willing to put themselves in some sort of, you know, once the enforcement order was there, anyone who was coming to camp knew that it was potential that um, you're going to run across the police while you're there. So it took a certain kind of person to be willing to, be in that environment. Yes. So now you've got these people with similar, well, there was a few different worldviews, but like passion. It, yeah, it took a certain passion to get out there and be there and stay there. And then now you've got generations. And so one thing I think that we've talked about before is um, the way that like the way information is shared and exchanged is so different now. So when I was 25, if I really wanted to understand how a certain thing went down, especially if it was culturally, I had to seek out a person and ask them what their perspective was. And there's definitely something, a benefit to that, and then also a downside. So, you know, if the person I sought out, you had to trust that person. You had to know that the information you were getting from them was trustworthy because that's the information you're getting, right? So I'm going to go talk to an elder in my community and I'm going to ask them their perspective on something and that's the information I'm going to hear. And I can get a few different perspectives, but maybe like three or four after some effort and talking to a human 
But, you know, now, and this isn't like a technophobe thing. This isn't an ageist thing. It's just really interesting that now if you're looking for information about something, you can just look it up. You don't have to talk to someone who's been through it. Right. And the gender roles. Definitely with gender roles, um, there is so much for people like myself to learn about gender representation, mm-hmm. about gender identification. You know, there's a lot that, I mean, partially it's because of my age and partially it's because of the community I live in. Like I live in a really, really, really white community and um, a really, it's its not fully, it's actually, it's not a straight community by any means, but it's pretty, pretty vanilla, uh, pretty, pretty easy to digest. Do you know what I mean? I live in my bubble. I live alone. I've lived alone for 12 years. I work alone. It's all got to end. So it was the first time that I'm really in a circle of folks and like getting, you know, like, Hey, don't say it like that. Or you need to learn this. And I was just like, Oh my God, you're right. Thank you. And it was like, it was a, it was so great. It was just so great. <laughs> I just loved being told. It was good. Interesting. Yeah. I really liked, I, I really appreciate that part about, um, of the, yeah. Wow, so it sounds like you it sounds like you realized you were isolated and alone and lacking interactions. And it's interesting because Bill Jones talking that indigenous people are like that, you know, in the, the same way, they're living remotely and isolatedly. So and, and, and then and then you find a way to work with new people in different ages and learning so much about them and you're so grateful for this opportunity. And even happy to be told, you know, that you're doing something wrong, that it's hurting someone or it's not appropriate because it's, it's part of your growth and it's part of opening up to life. Okay, so I'm going to, I can relate it to this and it's kind of, it's reoccurring all the time. But um, I got sober about eight years ago. And when I got sober, um, I, I can think back of, on it. And this, the way I explain it is um, I felt like, Somebody had poured cement onto my heart and it was just about to harden. And I was given this opportunity to either like break the mold or just forever have my heart in a cage. Mm. That's how I felt when I had to get sober because those were my options. And um, this is like another version of that is that um, something had stagnated so deeply but didn't seem problematic. It's just the way I'm going through life. I, I go through life this way and I do these things and I live here and I do this. Um, but uh, yeah, nothing was going to change if I didn't make that movement. So these people have been very integral in breaking that mold personally for me. And like, I mean, this is nothing about the blockade and nothing about um, decolonizing and nothing about any of that stuff. It's just that it was on a personal level. And I know that's maybe not what we were talking about, but. <laughs> of course we are. Everything is very personal for you and very personal for everyone that experienced, you know, Fairy Creek. Even if you come, we want to talk about concepts, those concepts has to go down to our personal reality and eventually integrate them and feed them to our life and to our personal life. So 
we have to look at those things also from the personal perspective, how it fits to my life. Who am I? What I was used to? How do I integrate those things right now? So it would be wrong not to look at this in the personal level, I think. And eventually, after we have, you know, after interactions happened, we can interpret it as this was racism or this was that. Yeah. No, exactly. Um, so we, and also, if we want to solve something, we solve it first on a personal level, and then we can address the bigger concepts like racism and... Yeah, well, we're not ever going to solve anything. Like, we're not going to solve racism on a, a bigger level if we haven't solved it on a personal level. Exactly. So that's a really important part of all of this. Yeah, and breaking out of um, assumptions about where each other is coming from. Okay, this has been a really long conversation, and I am finally getting to the root of something. Okay, that I'm with you. Is- was starting to be like, what am I trying to get to? Um, in all of this, you know, we're, uh, I'm coming from a racist culture. I'm coming from a white supremacist culture. Um, but I don't know you and you don't know me. And we don't know what experiences either of us are walking into this space with. So I can't just assume that you don't know. I can't just assume that you are going to respond in a certain way. And in fact, if I decide that you're going to respond in a certain way, I may actually make you respond in that way. Do you know what I mean? Yes, exactly. Make any- mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, yeah. In coaching, it's called thoughts creating reality. And it's like, if I believe that I will fail, So unconsciously, I will try to minimize my pain of failure. So I won't try as hard. I won't try too much. I'll stop, you know, uh, as soon as I get the first rejection. And I'm going to explain myself. Here, I failed because this and this and this. And I knew it. And it's because this and this and this. And, you know, just the same thoughts. Like nothing new. And this is where, you know, you're kind of in this pattern. Because it's, you don't learn anything new. You're just kind of chewing the same thoughts. Asking me a little bit about my experience with, um, with that stuff. And I think I was, I was relaying to you a story about um, how I've, I was kicked out of camp on a couple of occasions because I'm a loud mouth. <laughs> and um, I think we had been talking about, um, yeah, we've been talking about BIPOC folks and safety and safer spaces And how, yeah, I was once kicked out of camp because there was a circle going on. Um, well, there was a circle gathering. Grandma Losa was starting a circle. And I had been working all day. And I was on my way back to go do some work. And I was talking to somebody. And I have a really big voice. And I'm, I try hard sometimes to be a smaller person than I am, like a smaller personality. Because I can, I can be very loud, which is great if I'm your biggest fan. And Um, not great when I need to be smaller. Um, yeah, and I was talking to somebody and it was louder than I was aware of. And this person just came up to me and said, who are you to speak over indigenous voices? You are not welcome on this land. You need to leave. Ouch. <laughs> That hurts. 
yes and no. Um, it was a bit shocking, but also I know me and I know where I'm coming from. And I think I was sharing with you that I had been staying at Elder Bill's. It would have been irresponsible for me to leave camp at that time because of the responsibilities that I had taken on. And, you know, we, it is really hard. When you spoke out loud, were you trying to overvoice the indigenous voices? Absolutely not. Of course not. Were you being yourself? Yeah, and so it was um, made clear to me that being myself in that space, I might want to look at that. Two things happened. One thing, uh, I heard what was said to me, but I was also kind of offended, you know, because I don't know this person. They had just shown up that day. They were an Indigenous leader as I, I was... It was told to me that they were there to do some workshops. Um, I'd never met them before. So I don't know if those things were told by a person you know, if it would hurt less. This person assumed you have an intention to override Indigenous voices, which obviously you didn't. So that's hurtful, you know. And, and what I also hear from you is that you're saying that having a big personality is problematic. And this perspective usually don't promote change, it promotes self-hate and guilt and stagnation. And I hope you don't believe that you should make yourself wrong to make other people feel better. Yeah, and, but the thing is, is what I, you know, coming out of that, I, sure, I feel that way. Like um, not seeing, making an assumption, not seeing like what's going on from my perspective, blah, blah, blah. Um, it was a really good example of how I need to be better at making room for indigenous voices. Like if somebody feels like they have to aggressively approach me in order to be heard, then there's something wrong, right? I'm not making space for someone to just come and say, hey, blah, blah, blah. Hey, this is what you're doing. And in this particular case, I actually don't feel like I was wrong, <laughs> but it was still a really good indication of what I could work on. And, and so that is what came out of that for me a little bit is just to take, take some stock and pay more attention to if somebody is in a position where they have to make themselves big and loud and stomp their feet in order to be heard, to say that they're hurt, then there's something really wrong. Wrong in what? Yeah, if somebody has to go to an aggressive extreme to express that they are feeling hurt, There's something wrong in the environment that needs to be addressed. Music